Welcome, everybody. I'm so excited to welcome you all here to tonight's event, The Pandemic as a Portal, Activism and Opportunities for Structural Change Following Moments of Crisis and Upheaval. My name is Millie Lake. I'm an associate professor here at LSE. And among other things, my research focuses on gender politics, institutional reform and political violence, predominantly in the aftermath of war. I'm really honored to be joined here by my brilliant co-host friend and co-moderator Natalia Nakfi, who is an assistant professor here at LSE in international political economy and whose research examines how countries can exert political control over their financial sectors to support structural transformation of the economy. Our event tonight is hosted by LSE International Relations Department and forms part of LSE's Shaping the World series. The Twitter hashtag for this event is LSE COVID-19. I'm delighted to welcome so many of you here tonight to think with us about what this year might mean for the future of global politics, but also to turn our attention to what is happening here in the UK. As a scholar of international relations and comparative politics, I'm concerned with reflecting on what lessons learned elsewhere in the world might teach us about what we are currently facing. I'm awestruck to be joined by this all-star cast of truly incredible activists, scholars, and political commentators who have been generous enough to share their expertise with us today. I'm going to briefly introduce all of them, and you will have the opportunity to pose them questions at the end. If you'd like to type your questions um, for any of the panelists into the chat using the Q&A function, feel free to do so. You can also post questions on Facebook live stream. So Avia Sarah Day is a lecturer in criminology at Birkbeck University of London, as well as an activist in the East End chapter of Sisters Uncut. Dr. Day's research focuses on domestic violence, transformative justice and prison abolition. Grace Blakely is a staff writer at Tribune magazine and author of a number of books and articles, but most recently, and of great relevance to this panel, The Corona Crash, How the Pandemic Will Change Capitalism. Chris Ann Jarrett is the co-founder and CEO of the organization We Belong, the first UK-wide charity set up and run entirely by and for young migrants. Chris Ann and her co-founder were inspired to become campaigners for young migrants after experiencing firsthand the impact of the government's hostile environment policies. Shanice McBean is an activist and writer from Hansworth, currently living and working in Tottenham. And Sakina Sheikh is a local councillor in Lewisham and a Labour candidate for the upcoming London Assembly elections 2021. She's a climate justice campaigner at the charity platform, working on the London Leap Project, which aims to centre grassroots voices in the climate transition and create radical transformative visions for a future of climate justice. So before we get started, I just wanted to say a couple of words about the motivation for this event. And the title of it is taken from an article written by Arundhati Roy and published in the Financial Times back in April of this year. It's a really beautiful article and I strongly encourage everybody here to read it. And I want to read out a short excerpt here as it provides, in my opinion, a really valuable framing for this event and conversation. So if you'll indulge me for a moment, Whatever it is, coronavirus has made the mighty kneel and brought the world to a halt like nothing else could. Our minds are still racing back and forth, longing for a return to normality, trying to stitch our future to our past and refusing to acknowledge the rupture. But the rupture exists, and in the midst of this terrible despair, it offers us a chance to rethink the doomsday machine we have built for ourselves. 
nothing could be worse than a return to normality. Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. So this article resonated with me a lot when I first read it and I've read it multiple times since. My own research, and in particular, my recent work with Marie Berry and our collaborators, looks at war as a critical juncture for social transformation through the lens of feminist political organizing. Precisely because it is so destructive, war can upend deeply entrenched hierarchies and structures of power and create openings and opportunities for previously disenfranchised communities to enter new political spaces. Changed political landscapes and opportunities for women and other marginalized constituents following war have been well documented. Countries that have emerged from war over the past two decades are significantly more gender equal than countries that have not. Because of the socio-political, demographic and economic shifts that accompany moments of crisis and upheaval, women have, and other constituents have often found their way into political and economic spaces that were not previously available to them and have exerted influence over new gender progressive legislation, have been able to leverage new resources, openings and opportunities for feminist mobilization. So while the COVID pandemic is not akin to war, at least for most of us, it does represent a similarly critical juncture with the potential to radically transform the world in which we live. As many of our panelists today will touch on, we see glimmers of these transformative shifts in the economy and the culture of work already. And in spite of myriad challenges the current political climate presents to us, we also see glimmers of opportunity and the possibility of changing the conversation in key sectors. So I'm thinking in particular, the discourse around social protection for the furlough scheme and universal basic income here in the UK and in Europe, the climate crisis and the creation of green jobs in the context of rising mass unemployment and housing and health policy in the midst of the global pandemic. So while there was a lot to be cynical about in the temporary housing of some of the UK's um, rough sleepers in April of this year, the fact that it happened at all the fact that it happened under one of the UK's most reactionary governments since Margaret Thatcher and the fact that it was actioned in a shockingly short space of time offers evidence and a glimmer of recognition among some stakeholders, both that solutions to these various interlocking crises are possible and perhaps more importantly that any society is only as strong as its most vulnerable members. So the idea, if not the language, that an injury to one is an injury to all, adds weight and meaning to a discourse that centers our interdependence and collective well-being over unfettered individualism. In this sense, the pandemic shone a blinding light on the importance of solidarity as a guiding principle of, of politics. Excuse me. So with that in mind, I'm really blown away to bring together the expertise of this remarkable group of activists, scholars, and thinkers each of whom have been working to harness this moment in the service of a politics that centers community, justice, and care. I'd like to ask each of the panelists to introduce themselves and their work. And as you are introducing yourself, 
If you could spend a couple of minutes just reflecting on what you've observed in the sectors in which you work over the past nine months, I'm particularly interested in learning from you about similar openings, entry points or spaces that have opened up, as well as what the pandemic has made visible. So I'll pass over to Via, first of all, and then we'll turn to the other panelists in turn. I'll pose then another question to the group um, and we will, after that, open it up for audience Q&A. Thank you so much. Hey, uh, thank you for that lovely introduction, uh, Millie. Um, so yeah, my name's Avia Day and um, in my day job, or sort of in my night job, because um, I work at Birkbeck, which is an evening university. Um, but in my usual work, I'm a lecturer. And outside of that, I'm involved in a number of different um community organising groups, um, such as Sisters Uncut, which was mentioned, and more recently, the COVID-19 Mutual Aid Network. And um, it's really great that I was able to, like, build on some skills before this pandemic around community organising, because it came in very handy um, when the pandemic hit. And when it became quite clear that the state was really dragging its heels um, for quite a long time in terms of having any kind of social response. Um, it, there was a point, you know, in sort of, I guess, late February, early March, where it kind of seemed to dawn on everyone that the government isn't really going to come and save us or, or really do anything. Um, and then that's the point where these mutual aid groups kind of like got set up all over the country, um, which is really inspiring because it you know just seeing so many different places and so many different contexts people um deciding to look out for other people in their local area to look out for vulnerable people to look out for um people that needed would need support if they're self-isolating um which it was amazing um but I guess one of the things that I you know really took home from it was I guess I've always been a little bit sceptical of the state and the state's um, role in, in, in looking after us all. And it's kind of interesting that um, this pandemic hit quite soon after an election that a lot of us felt pretty bitterly disappointed in. Um, and many of us felt invested in, you know, as gonna, was going to be something that was going to, um, you know, fund the NHS, um, give us the things that we needed to survive. And that didn't happen. And then lo and behold, this pandemic hit and all of the things that we'd been arguing for were um, suddenly in under, you know, much more sort of sharp, uh, a sharper lens. And um, actually, the response was was that people and communities decided that, you know, if the state's not going to step in, then then we're going to have to do that. And um one of the things that's quite interesting, even though I've been, always been quite sceptical of the state, we're often told that, you know, people, ordinary people don't have the capacity to do this. Ordinary people don't have the capacity to to look after each other on a wide scale. And I guess what I found um, really interesting in terms of we're thinking about openings is that it kind of proved that you can actually, um, you know, I live in London and in any given street, you've got people with the skills to support each other um, from people with um, medical um, medical expertise, p 
people who um, teach, people who um, know about community organizing. You have all of these resources. Um, and actually, if you tap into that, then people can give each other the support that they need. And it's hyper local. So, like, you know, if you think about things like how long it takes, you know, if an elderly person needs support, um, doesn't have any food in the house, how long would it take for um, the state to be called up and and for that to be addressed? You know, it, it's not going to be quick. But if you've got a neighbor's number, they can go and sort that out within half an hour. You know, and it's actually, you know, even though we're constantly told like, no, ordinary people, only the state can do this, you know, um, actually, you know, it's more efficient and people do have the capacity. They do have the skills. It's just about pooling those resources together. So I think even though I had an inkling that that was true, I think that when the pandemic hit and the mutual aid groups like um, got set up, it really opened up that actually if we pulled We've got all the resources, but if we pulled, um, if we were able to have control over more of the resources, then actually I do think we've got the capacity to do that ourselves and we don't have to wait for the state to do that. Um, so, yeah, that's what I wanted to say on that. Thank you so much, Avia, and we'll come back to you with follow up questions shortly. Um, Grace, I'll turn over to you. Yeah, thank you so much, Millie. Um, and yeah, I think. What Avir was just saying actually really resonates with um, some of the stuff that I want to say. Um, I'm going to be talking a bit about my new book, uh, which you very kindly mentioned in the introduction, The Corona Crash, How the Pandemic Will Change Capitalism. Um, because I think I mean, the kind of central argument of the book is that I think the pandemic actually reveals quite a lot about the neoliberal state. Um, because we've kind of been told for several decades now that neoliberalism is about a shrinking of the state. Um, and that it's about the state kind of stepping back and uh, intervening in the economy less as though there's this kind of separation between politics and, and economics and wider society. But actually, I think it's become very, very clear. It's, it's actually very clear if you look back um, at many of the crises that have uh, racked the global economy over the last several decades. But it's particularly clear now that neoliberalism is less about a shrinking of the state and more about a reorientation of the state away from supporting the interests of working people and towards supporting the interests of a very particular class coalition. Um, and we've, we've seen this over the course of the pandemic in the way that the kind of hierarchy of intervention was structured. And I think Avia just laid that out really, really clearly. Um, but you know, when, you, when you think about it from a kind of macroeconomic perspective, what did the government do when the, the crisis was, um, was uh, kind of first beginning to hit the, the global north in uh, kind of February and March. Well, we had immediate action from the Bank of England, which is an arm of the British state. Um, and that was first undertaken to support the finance sector, lots of money pumped into financial markets. Then there were more programs announced by the Bank of England to support big businesses. Then we had some support announced uh, by the government for mortgage holders. After that, it was support for small businesses. Um, and then after small businesses came the furlough scheme, um, you know, after some significant uncertainty as to wh whether or not that was going to happen and under quite a lot of pressure for, from the, the unions and the labor movement. Now, you know, that hierarchy says something in itself, but it also doesn't say a lot about the people who've been excluded from that support. Um, so there's a lot of people who are self-employed, who are in the gig economy, who are precarious workers, who are migrant workers, who haven't been ex uh, included in any of that support. Um, there's people on universal credit who've 
had this kind of paltry increase of 20 pounds a week in their um, in their grant. And for many of many of whom that just simply is not enough uh, to get by people in the private rented sector, for example, you know, the just staggering hypocrisy of giving mortgage holders a break on mortgage payments and yet forcing private renters, many of whom are paying rent out of their significantly reduced salaries to those people who have mortgages is, again, staggering. And it really does show the way in which um, state power is used by different groups in their, you know, but in their own interests. Um, And as I said, you know, this is something that's become clear over the pandemic, but it's also something that you can see um, in the development of uh, the particular kind of capitalism that we have in the UK today, a kind of heavily financialized um, form of uh, heavily financialized and internationalized form of capitalism. Um, so it came out very much in the in the global financial crisis when you had significant bailouts for large financial institutions, followed by austerity for the vast majority of, of people. Um, but it also came out before then, you know, if you look at the response to the tech bubble, for example, there was a um, a real push by central bankers to say, we are going to cut interest rates very low, we're going to loosen monetary policy to make sure that this party can, can start up once again. So, you know, this was a, a time at which central banking was kind of reoriented uh, towards basically looking at what was going on in stock markets and saying, well, it's basically the role of central banks to make sure that stock prices are carrying on going up forever and related to that house prices. And, you know, the ultimate manifestation of this uh, way of thinking is quantitative easing, which has boosted house prices and exacerbated the, um, the housing crisis in the name of financial stability. This is, again, another good example of the way in which state power and often quite like technocratic forms of state power are being used to support the interest of the wealthy elite at the expense of the vast majority of people. Um, Another thing that we're seeing as a result of this crisis, and I write about this quite a bit in the book as well, is that it is uh, striking at another central part of neoliberal ideology. So, you know, the idea that the state needs to kind of get out of markets is one. The other one is the idea that like competition within those markets is very, very important because, you know, this is, again, a long term trend. But the financial this crisis, sorry, has really deepened um, levels of market concentration and monopoly power in a number of different industries. Um, So, for example, the uh, biggest uh, tech companies, the biggest five tech companies are now worth a quarter of the entire S&P 500 in the US, which is like a staggering level of market concentration. And you tend to see this anyway during crises when small firms collapse, big firms with higher margins, better relationships to the state, better relationships with financial institutions are able to survive. And that process is now happening on steroids. Um, The small businesses who are in receipt of those bounce back loans, the banks administering those loans have said that between 40 and 50% of those institutions will default. So we're seeing, you know, this kind of structure of neoliberal ideology, which says states should get out of markets and markets should be competitive, is increasingly being shown for what it always was, which was just kind of um, uh, a convenient ideology used to cover over the power relations that actually underpin this model, which has nothing to do with free markets, really. It has nothing to do with uh, kind of, um, you know, abstract economic ideas about the viability of competition in terms of promoting, you know, social welfare. It's all about a set of policies that are actually aimed directly at increasing the power of the people at the very top of society, those in charge of big businesses, shareholders, financial institutions, and various representatives of the state over uh, those of working people. 
But I think what's been interesting as well about the pandemic, and again, this comes back to some, to some the stuff that Avia was saying about how people are kind of not taking this anymore, is that there has been this pushback against very particular um, forms of what people basically refer to in kind of popular language as corruption, right? So the fact that so many people have been left out of support from the state, and yet Serco is getting millions of pounds worth of public money to basically do absolutely nothing. That has been a real lightning rod for popular anger, as has the fact that many of these businesses have been given big loans by the state and only gone on to pay out uh, huge amounts of money to shareholders. Um, and I think, you know, that kind of backlash in the name of corruption I'm kind of against the the collusion, basically, of our political and economic elites to construct a system that benefits them and to insulate that system from democratic accountability. That potentially presents um, quite an important transformation because it undercuts this idea that the big debate between left and right is like the state should do more versus the state should do less. This is not a very compelling argument. And I think we've seen time and time again during elections and on the doorstep that just saying we're going to do what the Tories do, but spend more money is uh, is not a particularly compelling offer to people. So I think there's an opportunity now for you know the left, for progressives, for anyone who wants to see a change in society to take the initiative a bit and actually say what we want isn't just a bigger state; it's a more democratic one. And I guess I want to pose the question um, for the rest of this debate, and I'll I'll stop there. What would a society look like in which that hierarchy that I mentioned? where you have financial institutions, big business, mortgage holders, da, 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 and like migrants, private renters, people in, in universal credit at the bottom. What would it look like if that hierarchy was flipped on its head? Um, and rather than, you know, a tiny elite at the very top of society making all the decisions and being insulated from democratic accountability, you had a real democratization of our economy, which aimed at putting the voices of those who are traditionally sidelined at the center of all of our political and economic institutions. So I will stop there and hand over. Thank you, Millie. Amazing, thank you so much, Grace. Um, I'll turn over to Chrisanne um, and then we'll come back to that fantastic question um, momentarily, thank you. Thank you, Millie. Um, so thank you, I'm co-founder and co-CEO of We Belong, as mentioned, the UK's first migrant youth-led charity, and we advocate um, for the rights of young migrants, um, sharing power with the young people to create a strong counter-narrative to the UK's hostile environment, and um, hoping for a shift in our immigration policy and culture. Um, so primarily within We Belong, I, I work with 16 to 25-year-olds who migrated to the uh, UK as children, and the UK is on undoubtedly their home. Um, they're predominantly from Commonwealth nations, um, but they have precarious status. That means they um, do not have settled or British citizenship. And this can lead to various barriers when entering the world of work, um, opening bank accounts, right to, to rent and access to higher education. So I operate within the migration sector. Um, and I think there are two openings that I wanted to highlight. Um, at, that have been happening in the political arena, um, actually prior to COVID, um, there was this agenda, right? There was an immigration agenda because of Brexit. There was the idea that we must reform and have a new outlook on what a new immigration system should look like. So there were conversations that had started prior to COVID and due to the slowing down of everything and the focus 
solely being on the government's response to the pandemic. It was unfortunate that those conversations had to be parked. However, we had to work really hard um, to, I guess, get updates and find out what was really happening because we'd come so far in developing those narratives and pushing that change that we didn't want it to, you know, fall off of a cliff edge without accountability. And so the first opening I would mention, it, it operates within the immigration system. So in, in, 20, in 2018, the Windrush scandal broke, uh, and this focused on the hostile environment in the UK, the deportation, the job losses and discrimination experienced by British citizens who were caught up in a broken immigration system and overlooked despite being invited to the UK lawfully and how, having all rights to remain here. So this scandal was seen as a stain on our nation's conscience. And so um, there have been inquiries not only to figure out what happened, what led us to this point, uh, and how British citizens were being deported to country, their country of birth, but most recently, there were inquiries set out um, and recommendations set out in the Wendy Williams review, uh, which presented a, a, a few um, recommendations to the Home Office, who have now accepted the, all of the um, recommendations and are hoping to create some change. The second opening was with Brexit, right, and the EU settlement scheme. So there are three million plus EU citizens in the UK. And so the settlement scheme focuses on regularizing their status post-Brexit. It allows us to reimagine what a new immigration, a better immigration system to look like. Um, and this was really um, the key opening for us as an organization to say, here is the current system as it, it stands. We refuse to call it the compliant environment because it's still very much hostile. Um, let us try and reimagine and recreate um, and work in collaboration with the government to have a better system so that the EU migrants don't have to face the same um, levels of impossibility when um, navigating a very complex immigration system as do non-EEA nationals. The second thing I would say, and everyone's echoed it so far, is that the, um, the pandemic has been revealing a lot, right? It's, it's shone light on injustices that have been rife in our communities for a long time. But I would say that we are presently in the enlightenment phase of the Black Lives Matter movement, where society is somewhat coming to terms with injustices being faced by the Black community and the structural and systemic inequalities that perpetuate a cycle of socio and economic disparity. A lot of the young people we work with are from BAME backgrounds and this pandemic, um, in, the, in light of the pandemic, we actually received some resources and through some funding to set up a COVID emergency grant. And within only two weeks of that being open, we were inundated with applications from young people applying for basic and essential needs because they were negatively impacted. Their households were negatively impacted. A lot of them, their families working on the front line in the NHS. Now, the BAME community in the UK accounts for only 14% of the overall population. Yet the early data shows that over a third of patients admitted into intensive care situations following the outbreak of the virus were actually from BAME backgrounds. So we had to really ask, why is this? Um, what? Uh, and it's likely because a lot of them are working on the front line. So there was the intersection between migration, a lot of migrant frontline workers and, um, you know, and race as well. And so it was really crucial for us to put pressure on the government to continue existing conversations that we we're having. And also, um, you know, as Millie mentioned, this is a reactive government for them to react and investigate why what is happening, because the BAME community matter too in our COVID um, response.
So the last thing I'd say is that it's important to know that these things were happening before the mistreatment of migrants um, from different backgrounds and racial inequality. They are very much present in the UK. Um, racial inequality is not a problem that they in the US face solely. Um, but these are still openings. And I say these are openings because after exposure, there was a shift. There was a shift in the political arena because the nation and the world was watching, right? How we're responding and how taking care of those who we have the right, who, um, who are in our communities. So these injustices were exposed using the power of um, social media activism as well. Uh, a lot of people managed, you know, if they couldn't go out on the streets to campaign and advocate, they were taking to social media and organizing a digital movement. So I want us to, to just note that. Um, one of the things I would say is that once these spaces are carved out for us to have these conversations, it's really important what, what role for us to define what role as, as um, you know, as professionals, as civil society, we are going to take to optimize these spaces and have these conversations and strike up partnerships that will create and initiate lasting change. But the last thing I would say is that we must ask ourselves on whose terms are these conversations being had? Um, who is responsible for opening up these spaces and these platforms because they will ultimately hold the power. They will dictate the terms of engagement and also the closure of these spaces. So we really need to um, interrogate that um, as, as we go along, but I'll, uh, you know, um, I will develop that argument later on. Amazing, thank you so much, Chrisanne. And that resonates a lot with, um, with a lot of the work that Marie Berry and I have been doing lately. So I'm really excited to hear you talk more about that. Um, so I'll turn now to Shanice and then to Sakina and Natalia. Thank you. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, so my background, like Via, is in Sisters Uncut. And I think one of the key questions that we always asked ourselves is how do you contextualize something that's very private, like domestic violence, within its social context? Like, how do you illuminate something that happens in the home um, with the very public conditions that make it possible in the first place? And I think... Uh, that's a principle that I've taken with me from sisters. And I think there's nothing more private than an invisible enemy. But obviously what we know from COVID-19 is that it has very social origins in terms of what creates a pandemic and, and what creates infections um, that spread across society in the way that COVID has. So I want to kind of take this principle and apply it to the pandemic situation and suggest what that might mean for kind of organizing in the future. And to do that, I'm going to start with some quite bleak statistics. Um, these are from June 2020, um, and they kind of map out what happened in care homes. So 34% of all COVID-19 deaths in Austria were linked to care homes, 50% in Belgium, 85% in Canada, 49% in France, 56% in Ireland, 34.1% in Spain, 41% in England and Wales, and of the US, the 47 US states that actually gave statistics, 45% of deaths were from long-term facilities. So to contextualize this, the BMJ Open um, did research back in 2014, and they found that there were 45,000 uh, 45, excess deaths in health and social care in England as a result of austerity. And in 2017, they extrapolated, they extrapolated this data, and that's where the kind of 120,000 excess deaths caused by austerity statistic came from that people probably have heard before. The data also found, the research also found that over 60s and care home residents were the people most at risk from excess deaths. And that was just as a result of cuts in austerity. 
but also that a decrease in nurse numbers was likely the key to these excess deaths. So I think this is really important because it actually moves us away from this quite individualistic narrative of old people being more likely to die because of some inherent biological pathology and actually exposes the social conditions involved in making a pandemic possible in the first place. Infection, I think it's really important to say, isn't just biological or individual. It's infection happens um, and the ability for an infection to spread requires optimal social conditions. And it's those social conditions that turn a virus into a global pandemic. And in our current context, those social conditions are, of course, caused by capitalism and neoliberalism in specific. So in the case of care homes, we're talking privatisation of care, cuts to services, which has led to a deterioration in the quality of care. Um, And also there's a very precarious position that elderly people hold in society, um, as Satoris in a really, really amazing article um, called Beyond Lockdown discusses, as both consumers of private care, therefore um, making, creating an interest in having, making uh, elderly people as a group as profitable as possible, But elderly people also exist as this kind of surplus population who aren't particularly economically productive. So there's also an interest in making them as cheap as possible to look after. So the point of going through that is to kind of show that those stats that I mentioned earlier, the levels and rates of people dying in care homes is actually because of the society that we live in. It's because of the social conditions in which elderly people live in, hidden away in kind of contemporary housing conditions that don't lend themselves to physically distancing as well as um, not having to be mentally isolated. And I think another key example of this principle of bringing the private into the public is what happened in the first three months of lockdown in London, where 22,000 stop and searches um, were conducted against young black men and boys. And that's actually like an incredible statistic. It's equivalent to a third of the entire population of black men and boys, a third of the entire population of black men and boys being stopped in the span of three months, which is a massive increase, obviously, on previous years. But the key thing about this is it happened at a time when crime, as Priti Patel very enthusiastically told the nation, had fallen significantly, and also at a time where societal crime in general was on a downward trajectory. So those are the types of conditions, um, as well as, you know, the murder of Mark Duggan and George Floyd that happened over the summer that kind of created that abolitionist rallying cry around defunding the police. And one more thing that I want to kind of use to make this point before I get to the conclusion is we're all aware of the kind of higher mortality um, rate of black, Asian and minority ethnic people as a result of COVID-19. But I think what's really important to discuss is the fact that that's not because of any kind of pre-existing health conditions necessarily or, you know, Black people just have these weird genes that make us more likely to die from respiratory disorders, but it's actually caused by an increased risk of infection, according to the Office of National Statistics themselves. And what causes an increased risk of infection? Your position in the economy, for example, as precarious workers, as key workers, as people in the service economy, your health outcomes, which are related to poverty, indicated by where you live, the type of job you have, access to healthcare. Um, So in other words, the social conditions of society under capitalism both create the conditions where a pandemic becomes possible. These social conditions also create the racial vulnerabilities that make Black, Asian and minority ethnic people more vulnerable 
to disease. And they also create the conditions that make us more vulnerable to state repression. And the reason why I bring these three things in tandem is because I, I think never has there been a moment, at least in my young years, where the kind of interconnectedness of humanity has been more exposed than now. And the way in which, for those who are paying attention, class and race and the social conditions under capitalism that create it have been exposed and have come to the fore. Um, and I guess to summarize, you know, in Roy's article, she discusses the fact that lockdown forced millions of poor workers and tenants in India to have to walk in for days in crowds to get back to villages to self-isolate. But that very push to force them to self-isolate in villages where they were neither working nor living actually exposed them to not only COVID-19, but hunger, exhaustion, state repression, homelessness, only to then be rejected and herded up by the police. And what's interesting on a global internationalist context is those very same conditions created that situation in India that also is killing people in care homes in Europe and is also creating the conditions for the hypercriminalization of black communities across the world. So to be quite frank and to be quite blunt, I think never has there been a moment where the need for a revolutionary ethos of social transformation has been more clear um, and not just stating the words of revolution, but actually mapping out a strategy for how to get there, which is uh, catch 22 because I'm not going to map out that strategy. I'm just going to state the words of revolution. Um, but yeah, I'll leave it there. Amazing. Thank you so much, Shanice. Yeah. Um, lots to talk about in all of that and to think about strategies and paths forward in, in the next set of questions that I want to pose to you all. Um, I'm going to turn to Sakina now and just encourage the audience to please pose your questions in the Q&A on the Facebook live stream and we will put them to all of the panellists as we go forward. Thank you. Um, thanks so much. And how do you follow a, a talk like that? Um, I'm going to attempt to probably badly, but here we go. Um, thank you so much, Millie, um, for A, hosting this event. I'm really, really grateful for um, the very intentional and deliberate way that you've curated it and you've thought about the theme and where we are at the moment and what what will nourish people um, in terms of the, the thinking and the, the analysis that we need to bring into the space. So a big thank you to you um, and to all the people on the call who've joined us, but also those who've been around you and um, helped you organise this. Um, really excited to be here and uh, already in awe of everything that I've heard. And really, I don't have... All that much to add um, so what I'll attempt to do is kind of pull it together and a big thank you to um, Avia, Grace, uh, Chris and Shanice for those fantastic opening remarks. Um, I think I probably uh, so in way of your question um, as you mentioned I'm a climate justice campaigner and a local councillor in Lewisham um, and the sort of three observations that I wanted to bring into the space in terms of I think where we're at and, and openings that come from that uh, the first being kind of the multitude of crises that I think we're in um, the second being that I think people are ready to walk through that portal that um, Arundhati Tiroi talks of um, and that many of us have referred to in, in the talk so far and lastly just exactly what it means to walk through that portal and what that you know that radical transformation that you talked about at the beginning Millie and our speakers have so eloquently talked us through as well uh, what what do we need to anchor that transformation or rather to catalyze that transformation or, or hold it what body of water do we want to swim in in order to to enable that transformation um, so I'll start with a series of crises that we're in. And again, I think it's already been sort of um, anchored in examples um, from our speakers. But one of the, the crises I think is, is 
Brexit, to be honest, whether you voted to remain or whether you voted to leave, I think that the last five to seven years, um, you know, Brexit in its original form filled a void um, that really comes from, um, I think, deep in economic inequality. Um, and what it has done, it has given rise to a, a very toxic um, debate in this country. And I think it's opened up space for the far right to grow in. And I think we have a uh, prime minister in number 10 who uh, wolf whistles regularly or dog whistles regularly to, to that rising um, uh, populist movement, not just here in the UK and across across the world, actually, when we look at uh, the outgoing president as well. So I think that that's a, a crisis that we have to put into context when we discuss what and how we go through the portal. Secondly, the kind of constitutional crises, I think that we're failing again with a prime minister in number 10 who has no care for the rule of law. I think it puts our democracy in a really dangerous place and, and destabilizes, I think, any sense of responsibility. Um, thirdly, a little bit more based on what I do for work, we're in a climate crisis. Um, I think we are dangerously close to doing irreparable damage to the earth. And I think that we've been at that stage for quite some time, actually. It's only when, you know, for instance, you have flooding here in the UK, or you even have the fires that we had a year and a half ago in the Yorkshire Moors or the Ashdown forests, that it seems like it's something that's at our doorstep um, here in the UK or even in other countries like Australia. But actually, the climate crisis has been on the doorstep of Global South countries for many years now. Uh, Kenyan farmers have been displaced uh, you know, Bangladesh is a third underwater. Indigenous women are killed systematically when fighting the excesses of the fossil fuel industry. Um, uh, so I think that the climate crises and, and, and those are the countries often least responsible for climate change. The global north countries had our industrial revolutions, and that is a big part of what catalyzed the global temperatures. Um, so, you know, the climate crises. And then, um, you know, fourthly, not so much fourthly, um, but rather something that underpins, I think, all of these crises um, is the kind of economic failings. I think 10 years of austerity is the context that we're operating in in this country and incoming into a, a, a big uh, global recession. Um, I, I think this underpins everything. And I think in order to walk through that portal, um, the fundamental linchpin of that has to be economic transformation, moving from an economy that's currently extractive to moving to an economy that's equitable. Um, because I think we've heard so eloquently from the speakers before me um, exactly what the manifestations of the current economic system mean for our lived experiences. And so I think that that's kind of takes me to my second point, which is people are ready. Um, people don't just want economic transformation. They don't just want a transformation of the way society is organized. They need it. Um, and if you look at that in the context of climate justice, um, you know, how do we ensure, um, well, I th I'll go on to how actually, but in terms of climate justice, I mean, I think last year was the first time in my lifetime where I've seen political parties or even the political mainstream acknowledging climate change as a real and urgent issue and fighting with one another to have the best kind of climate policy plan. Um, so I definitely think that in that place, we've reached a tipping point. Um, but also, I think like with the pandemic, um, again, I think Shanice and Avia and Grace and Chrisanne all, all eloquently spoke to this. The pandemic has really uncovered. Um, it's just it's just shone a light on a lot of the really morbid, uh, insidious inequalities and in the way that they manifest um, in our society, uh, you know, from the care homes that Shanice talked about to the racialized policing, um, but also the kind of barbarity of the homelessness, you know, the idea that we could overnight house homeless people instantly and end homelessness 
And then there was a point in which we said, okay, we're going to ask you to leave again. It's just this kind of, I think it's making people, it's really uncovering. Um, I think someone said it's, it's uh, removing any kind of veils um, of just exactly who our eco- economy serves. And it's certainly not workers and it's certainly not working people. So I think moving rapidly on to the, the third point of, of, of this necessity or desire to walk through this portal that I think people are ready to do um, well, I think this speaks a lot to what um, Avia started us off with in terms of talking about mutual aid group. And the, thir- the first point I'd make on this is about co-production of policy and using frontline solutions as the absolutely most under- fundamental way of enabling um, an actual uh, an actual walk towards liberation. I think if, if that's ultimately what we're all here fighting for, right, we're fighting for liberation, we're fighting for people's ability to um, have access to that liberation own that liberation create that liberation um and i think that for me that means that different people need to make political decisions and we need to make political decisions in a different way and a lot of the work that i do at platform on the london leap project is thinking about that co-production of policy in the context of the climate transition now that we know that climate change is real now that we can finally get on and start taking action around it now that we know that an extractive economy is at the heart of what catalyzed climate change um, and that it was a conversation about power and a conversation about money uh, it's the same structures of power and oppression that meant that Stephen Lawrence was killed here in South London that mean Ken Sarah Weaver was killed a climate fighter in the Niger Delta um, these global structures that 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 you know um how do I put this kind of uh um secure power and, and, and locks it into certain places in order to deeply and offer deep unlocking we need to make sure more people are sitting on the table more people are defining the table what the decisions made on the table and I think that the mutual aid groups showed us that that's possible and I, I completely agree with Avia I've always had an inkling but I think more than ever what it showed is people have a knowledge of their community that is you unique to the people living in those communities people have a capability to organize and organize effectively way before the state can organize and above all it's it's what you said of it's the instincts our instincts aren't competition like we're told through the economic lens of an extractive economy our instincts are cooperation it's like you said right at the beginning Millie if an injury to one is an injury to all those are our fundamental instincts so I think now more than ever people who haven't previously been politically um, engaged have a sense and understanding of what it means to and the power of collective action and what it can do in terms of uplifting everyone's quality of life and the point that I would leave on is using the creative in order to enable that co-production um Angela Davies says this quote that often grounds me which is she says that no battle is ever truly won but with each generation and in community we expand our very notion of what liberation and freedom looks like and for me the things that are like crucial in that is what well, a you know everyone let's be sustainable in our activism because no battle is ever truly won and we're in here, here for the long haul so look after yourselves but also in community um are we the most effective and ultimately it's about expanding our notion of freedom it's about cultivating the creative in order to think of what liberation looks like and i think some of the stuff that Shanice talked about so eloquently around abolitionist thinking, it comes from carving out the creative in our everyday. Um, it comes in imagining a world and a life that's beyond what we exist in. Um, so I know we'll be coming on to how we action this going forward, but I just wanted to say that the, the creative as a, as, as a kind of place that taps into people's heart energy is where we begin to shift. It's where we begin to shift in the, within the portal, but it's also a place that enables us to, to be our most imaginative self and, think and feel and uh you know imagine the most uh 
the most uh, abundant form of liberation. Well, Sakina, thank you so much. I'm going to pass to Natalia um, to reflect a little bit on all of the comments that the panelists have offered us so far. Um, and then I want to pose another question to all of you. I feel so fortunate to be here with all of these incredible minds. So thank you. Natalia, go ahead. Yes, hi. Thanks, Millie. Um, so my, my comments um, won't be as long or as eloquent as um, the rest of, of the panelists. So um, just to quickly introduce myself again, I'm um, an assistant professor uh, at LSE in International Relations. And um, I so in my research, I'm interested in the, the role of the state and the financial sector and how these uh, institutions can mobilize resources um, for really important structural transformations like a Green New Deal or industrial development. Um, and, and, you know, and, and so related to my, to my research interests, but, but mainly to also what the panelists have, have touched on so far, um, I'll, I'll comment very briefly about the role of the state. So, I mean, you know, I, I think that there, there is a need for the state for any large scale um, societal transformation. Um, you, you just can't get around it. Like, you know, whether we currently have, um, you know, a good state or a bad state, I, I think the state is really necessary. Um, and, and the key question, like Grace said, is whose interests does the, the state serve? And how can we make it serve the interests of working people? Um, so, you know, so crises are also opportunities for states, um, for especially for progressive states to, um, to kind of, uh, you know, make the private sector do things that are uh, good for the rest of society. So when when states bail companies out during crisis, uh, they you know they're in a position of power then to impose conditionalities. So things like employment conditionalities, uh, environmental conditionalities, and, and so on. And you know, recently there have been um, very interesting ideas floated, like for instance, um, this idea of a public wealth fund that that provides bailouts not through pumping financial markets full of liquidity or not through giving loans, but rather through buying equity in companies with a view towards uh, influencing future investment decisions to, to make the economy evolve in a more progressive direction. Um, and I think the, the 2008 crisis was kind of a huge missed opportunity in this regards because the, the banks were bailed out with essentially zero, like no conditionalities um, at all. And, and it seems like, uh, again, in, in the COVID crisis, um, you know, something, the conditionalities are just not strong enough. So, so you know, it's a question to, to these great panelists, what, what can we do to, to make sure that the, the conditionalities become stronger and serve the interests of those that, that we want them to, to serve? So um, with that, I'll, um, I'll hand it back to Millie for the second question. Thank you, Natalia. Um, I don't even know where to start, so I'm not gonna. I, I'm not gonna do justice to all of those incredible comments so far. I'm just gonna pose another question, and I'm gonna ask um, everybody. So, I mean, I think one of the things that becomes really evident in the comments that you have all so generously 
offered us so far is, is the ways in which these overlapping hierarchies of capitalism, imperialism, patriarchy, and white supremacy sustain one another. And a couple of questions emerged for me as you were talking, one about the role of the state and the role of communities in, in upending these hierarchies that Grace spelled out for us at the beginning. Um, and another is, is kind of how to build intimacy and solidarity in the conditions of social isolation that we're currently facing. And so I really wanted to ask all of you to, and, and if possible, kind of briefly, because I'd love to be able to take some questions from the audience as well. When we're thinking about these spaces and openings and entry points, how might we collectively harness these opportunities in the current moment? And so drawing on your experiences, I'd just love to hear a little bit about what has worked in the past, what you think is needed now in practical terms, and, and also how we avoid this co-optation of these openings that Shanice kind of alluded to by those with a vested interest in a return to normal or by those who want to kind of capture this moment for their own, to serve their own interests. So, yeah, I mean, what, what do you think it will take to use this energy um, and this moment of reckoning to imagine and work towards a different future or think differently about what is possible? And I'll start with Avia again. Thank you. Hey, thanks for that. Um, so great to hear from everyone else. Um, such a rich discussion. I guess for me, it is it is important to at least try to imagine our own capacity. And as I was saying in the my my um, first um, introductory bit, you know, the capacity of communities to um, have power and control over their own lives and to have power and control over um, the resources that define their lives and imagine what possibilities that could bring us in terms of meeting our needs. I think it's important not to limit our imagination um, around that. And I think for me, I've only ever seen evidence of, of the state limiting our imaginations and um, and co-opting the things that have... have um, have been imagined from the bottom up or have been imagined by communities in terms of what they need. I don't doubt that the state has enormous capacity. However, I think it would be far larger in terms of our imaginations, in terms of our, um, what we imagine is possible for us to be, um, uh, for us to, uh, what's the word? for us to um, be in control of those resources, to be for us to be in control of those things. And I think that has been evidenced every time we've been told it's not possible. It's not possible for, um, for ordinary people to, um, to, to pull resources together, to, to um, meet each other's needs. You know, it's been proven. This happened not only in the pandemic has this um, sh this light been shone, but we saw this in the wake of Grenfell as well. When um, in the days and the weeks after um, that tower was on fire, um, the state didn't stand in. It didn't turn up. It didn't support people. Only the community did. Only the community housed people. Only the community fed people. Only the community um, clothed people. And it did it really well. And it turned, and not only that, you know, people from the community counted the missing. The state didn't count the missing. The community did. There were people, statisticians from the estate who knew how to do that. We have those skills, um, but we don't have power. 
So I think, yeah, it's definitely true that at the moment, the systems that we need um, are in the hands of the state. But I definitely, you know, for me, I think um, every single time that we have imagined um, and then left it to the hands of the state, it has limited our capacity and it has limited our imaginations. And I think it's possible, um, you know, looking back, I think it's important to learn from uh, learn from history, learn from those mistakes, um, learn from the times that um, our struggle has been co-opted. Um, and one of the examples that I always like to look at is because I, I look at I work in domestic violence. I've worked in domestic violence for years and the domestic, you know, the refuge movement, the women's um, refuge movement started um, with in squats. Um, with volunteers and survivors um, um, without the state, outside of the state, on the basis of mutual aid, on the kind of things that we're talking about today in terms of COVID-19 and mutual aid, and and that was it. And um, even though, um, you know, we now have um, professionalised refuges, the idea that actually um, this is better... I think is, is, is a mistake. We've gone from um, a system of mutual aid where people support each other, where survivors support each other, where they learn from each other, and where we've had um, um, an open door policy to 200 women being turned away every single day from refuges when the state co-ops the struggle, okay? So it always limits. I've never really seen um, many examples where it's actually really expanded our imagination, it's expanded our capacity, it always limits it because it comes down to resources. So I think for me, we have to learn from that. We have to learn from that past. Um, and we have to at least try to imagine something different and try to uh, have some faith in our ability to uh, take control of those resources and take control of those systems for ourselves and to define it for ourselves. Amazing. Thank you, Avia. Um, I'll turn over to Grace and then um, pass to the rest of you. Yeah, thank you so much for all those contributions. Um, can I just say how refreshing and inspiring it is to be on a panel through, full of so many incredible women of colour who are all like bossing it in their respective um, spheres. It's been so great to hear from all of you guys. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, this panel is kind of turning hierarchies on its head and you guys are all turning hierarchies on their heads in all of your lives so it's really cool to to be here um i think there is an interesting question um so yeah natalia i i i um obviously really uh agree with a lot of what you were saying um and uh, found your question very interesting i think there are lots of um mechanisms that can be used to do the type of type of thing that you're you're describing so the imposition of, of conditionality on um institutions and bodies that receive state funding um and you know there's things like as you said the bounce back loans being converted into equity um there's ideas of turning the kind of stock of assets that the bank of england holds under qe into a national investment bank using it to capitalize a national investment bank um and, you know, all, all sorts of things like cr creating a national wealth fund, these sorts of things. Um, I think, you know, we're not short on ideas when it comes to policy, partly at least because of the kind of just in incredible intellectual um, uh, resurgence that I think there's been in progressive movements over the last five years. I think the interesting question here and the one that's been brought up quite a lot now is this question of the state and of state power. Um, and I think... Uh, 
uh, yeah, I'm going to start, I'm going to preface it by saying that I think the biggest challenge that we face is one of converting a sense of kind of individual grievance into forms of collective power um, and agency. And I think historically, when we've seen kind of broad social transformations, so transformations that reflect both a kind of shift in the balance of social and economic power, and also that are manifested in shifts in political institutions, that has been associated with the um, the building up and the exertion of forms of collective power. And I think, you know, the main the main barrier that I see, you know, there are all sorts of kind of institutional structural barriers preventing us from kind of turning movement energy into more lasting forms of institutional power. But I think one of the biggest things that is preventing, as I say, the shift from kind of individual grievance to um collective resistance is the sense that resistance is futile um in many ways right to kind of paraphrase the baddie in every like <laughs> cartoon um and i think you know this is something that we're encouraged to feel we're encouraged to feel that we are individuals and again this is a real central component of kind of neoliberal economics as individuals we are encouraged to feel like we are these atomized cells that exist within a market system we're bumping up against other people in these competitive markets we're competing against each other constantly um we are not encouraged to see ourselves as part of classes as part of of, you know, other broader social formations where links between human beings provide the, the basis and the foundations of forms of solidarity that are not just kind of material, um, but are kind of, yeah, like spiritual, I suppose, and and class-based and gender-based and, you know, um, and, uh, and and provide the foundations of, uh, of our identities as, as human beings. Um, so shifting from this kind of very pervasive form of individualism that's become so dominant broadly since the 1980s to an understanding of our collective power is really important, which is why I think the stuff that Avia was saying about realizing our power outside of institutions, outside of the state and on the ground is so, so, so important. But um, I also think that doing that has to be the foundations for a wider political project. And indeed one that is actually aimed at um gaining some sort of orientation towards state power um so i'm not saying you know we have to be in a situation where like we have a revolutionary party that is uh you know um manned by activists and takes control of the state and completely shifts things because i don't think that's realistic you know any kind of uh, movement that is going to be aiming towards state power in order to implement some of the things that we've been talking about is going to have to do so through an established political party and every step of the way it's going to be chipped away at it's going to be de-radicalized it's going to be kind of you know hit back down basically i think we've learned that recently um but the reason i think that it is important to kind of continue with that battle um in along the lines of the um the angela J davis quote that we heard earlier um to kind of not give up even in the face of you know barriers that seem to be completely utterly stacked against you is that whilst you know the, the the source and the foundations of what i think need to be this collective social transformation are um, in individuals and communities, the state is always going to be there to knock that back and to push these efforts back. And that is really, you know, where I think the, the orientation towards state power needs to come from. It's not based on the idea that, you know, a movement can acquire somehow state power and then use it to shift all the foundations of society. I don't think it works that way. What I do think is that the state as a tool, which is effectively you know, we see like states and markets as different and like capitalism is something that happens in the realm of markets and the economy. But the capitalist state is a foundational part of the way that capitalism reproduces itself. And the capitalist state will continue to batter social movements that attempt to 
um, push back against its its dominance. We saw that, you know, we've seen that throughout human history, right? Whether it's like uh, migrants organizing against the state, whether it's like the labor movement in the 1980s, um, you know, whether, like any kind of social movement that seems like it's close to being able to kind of create some sort of fundamental shift is radically and brutally attacked by all the different forces that the state can marshal and that capital can marshal, economic, political, military, police-based. Um, which is why I think, you know, the these two things, and I think that's kind of, I've said, t- taken a very long time to basically state the obvious, is that we have these kind of sets of policy goals that I think are really important for us to develop and think about. I think those need to be grounded in uh, a collective project for... Um, I suppose both like spiritual transformation individually and like collective transformation in our communities that can provide the foundation for this wider movement. Um, but that it isn't enough to just satisfy ourselves with a level of, of movement politics and with kind of the politics of resistance. I think we need to transform that into an institutional um, foundation. And in fact, I think that has actually been the biggest problem that that has emerged from the politics of, of Corbyn in the last five years was the um, unwillingness or inability to transform a very, very powerful social movement made up of hundreds of thousands of people across the country into more lasting forms of institutional power. And that's potentially why we end up in the position that we um, we found ourselves today. Um, yeah, I will leave it there. And also I've said to Millie, but I'm really sorry, I do have to head off early. So I'm going to stay for as long as I can to listen to further contributions, but I will then have to sneak out. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Grace. Chris Ann. Thank you. Um, so what is the role of the state? Um, and I guess my answer to that is it, it depends on what we're asking the state to do. So if it comes to the healing of communities and um, communities getting closure, I don't think that that's what we can actually look to the state for. I think we have to look within our communities and, you know, um, rely on each other to to have that um, healing process happen and that empowerment model. And I'll I'll go into it much later. Um, But the first thing I would say is um, everyone kind of touched upon it before. Um, And and you mentioned, um, Millie, about what do we actually need need to do now that the portal's open? How do we capitalise on this, all of this? So in my case, as mentioned, focusing on the migration sector. And and we purposely developed a campaign, um, a project within We Belong called Chasing Status, uh, where we aim to broker relationships and create an open dialogue between policymakers and young, young migrant community who are impacted by immigration policies. And so we really center um, lived experience in policy change in a time where migration and the narrative around migration is obscured by statistics and untruths about um, customer experience, uh, uh, as well as how the practices work, how the policies work in practice. So I would say that a lot of our immigration system and the rhetoric around it is based on assumptions which can be proven wrong. And so into this, I wanted to use one of the case studies um, to elaborate on this. I wanted to use our project Chasing Status as an, a good case study. So as mentioned, uh, the, 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 the pandemic slowed everything down. Policy was not moving in a way that we would want it to go in terms of the pace of change. And it's really unfortunate that actually a lot of immigration policy in this country is made through the most undemocratic means of uh, implementation ever. And that's through secondary legislation. Doesn't take much of a debate, doesn't take a lot of noise to be made for legislation that has a massive impact on thousands of people to happen. So we really wanted to ensure that we're engaged in those conversations. And so what we actually decided to do, we purposely did not launch any campaigns since March of 2020, 
up until now we, we haven't launched any new campaigns. And instead of making a noise externally, we use this opportunity to create partnerships with MPs and civil servants in the quest to make more substantive cultural part, um, changes within the Home Office and ensure, as I mentioned, that the Windrush scandal never happens again. And this was a bold decision not to make new campaigns, but rather focusing on strategy of gaining allies. So allyship is re really important. Now, as a charity, we are politically neutral, um, and we've gained, but we've gained a lot of momentum amongst Labour MPs and the opposition so far. But we must look to where actually power lies and who has the connections to make things happen. And as a result, one of, in our project uh, of trying to get shorter, more affordable routes to settlement for young migrants, we looked to targeting conservative MPs, and we did this very quietly uh, and. We did this through pr predominantly writing letters, which was very constituent led. It was led by the young people of lived experience. And it was a simple offer. The simple offer was, can you meet with us, request an offer? Can you meet with us to discuss how this negative, this immigration system is impacting myself and my family? I hope that in, in, in that conversation, you'd better understand where myself and the young, other young migrants are coming from. And as a result, can we work together to make change so there was the educative piece in those meetings and as well as, as well as the offer for allyship and I think that's really important I think there is a tendency within society when calling for equality for us to create an us and them narrative so we must really try and be really intentional about creating a new narrative that's inclusive people have wrongfully associated equality as a progressive movement and hence it is always equated to leftist ideologies but this is problematic and we must see equality at, 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 at the core as a value Value that people from all aspects of the political spectrum can and do subscribe to. And so we really led by using the language of values in our inter um, interactions with conservative MPs. And we've actually gained a lot of ground in that time. In that time, we managed to get a lot of meeting with civil servants and um, MPs, not only um, in the, you know, um, not, not um, only those in the cabinet but also primarily backbenchers who do carry some sort of power as well we shouldn't undermine the power of backbenchers and sometimes levering or connecting you to people that can actually create change and as a result of that by employing you know by using the values such as equality and family the unit and the cohesiveness of society and also the aspirational rhetoric that young people want to fully contribute to society and here's what's um, the barrier that they're facing how can we work together to remove this and this tactic has really benefited us and we've since given evidence to the Home Affairs Select Committee um, and this has led to direct questions being made of the Immigration Minister and now there's a meeting that we're going to have with the Immigration Minister Kevin Foster to see how we can work together. The final thing I would say, and everyone's touched upon it, is that this role of the state is really limited because, as mentioned, it's inevitable that when um, there is a power struggle, there will inevitably be a power struggle when it comes to social and legal change, um, where those in power are determined to you know, make the status quo as it is, the status quo, no changes. Um, and as a result, they determined, you know, we've seen with a lot of things after a scandal or a crisis has happened, post-crisis, the government has uh, erected these advisory groups or inquiries that are very limited in nature and it's their attempt to compartmentalize change and not um you know not lead to a transformative um, reform within the actual immigration system but this does a disservice to communities who not only want to be 
want to heal from from the injustices that they face but it also does a disservice in the sense that it's not on their terms we're always looking and giving more power to institutions as opposed to looking at power within and amongst our communities and that's really why we belong was really set up we recognize that actually there was there was this thing where you know there's different phases of social change and even after implementation we have to then address and look internally within for example the migrant community and say what are the state of affairs because policy change might not go broad enough it might not actually heal and cover the wounds that have already been created and so the empowerment piece is really important how do you equip social um, young, uh, young people and communities at large um to be better equipped to deal with injustices as and when they come how do they engage with those people in power uh, and that really is where I think resources are meant to go to to ensure that it's more sustainable so that when there is an upheaval um, we don't just shut down the conversation as and when a small incremental, incremental change is made but actually looking at it in the long term how do we ensure that these communities have always had power taken from them harness their power their lived experience to um, really drive social change now and in the future um, and in the future. Amazing. Thank you so much, chris I'm going to, in the interest of time, pass quickly to Shanice and then Sakina, and then we'll pose some questions from the audience. Thank you. Cheers. Um, to be honest with you, I don't feel entirely like qualified to talk on what happens next because I've never really organised in pandemic conditions. And I guess neither have a lot of us, which might explain the relative strategic malaise on the left at the moment. But what I do know is that I don't, I don't believe that we can rely on the state to meet our needs, precisely because of what I spoke about earlier. It's the state that facilitated and created the conditions that made the pandemic possible in the first place. Me personally, wouldn't I wouldn't really trust someone who shot me in the head to remove the bullet. So I believe that anything the state can do, as Avia said, we can do much better because we'd be doing it in our interest as communities and also as agents of historical change. But I think one of the kind of crooks um, and I guess one of the sticking points that I found um, thinking about organising in the current context is the two things that are really vital to activism and organising, space and the ability to socialise, have both become politicised places of caution and of fear due to the risk of spreading the disease. But it's precisely, as I said, space and sociality that are actually vital to the ways in which we envision political activity. So the protests, the meeting, the action, all of this happens both in physical space and socialising with other people. So there's a real sense in which all of our methods of disruption are currently disrupted, which is a bleak thing to think about. So in the interest of not leaving things on the level of despair and in the words of Lenin, what is to be done here? Um, so let's take domestic abuse uh, as an example. Um, domestic abuse, the risk of it has increased during lockdown. And it's my personal belief that it should always be someone's right to leave their home if they're at risk of violence in the home. But how do you square that with the fact that it's in the public interest to also not leave the home? So I guess there's a question here when we're talking about spaces. Are there ways to actually repurpose unused space? And in the likely event that we can't rely on the state to find the vigour to repurpose space, could activist groups do things like occupy office blocks for the street homeless, for domestic violence survivors? We've built huge, as Avia mentioned, um, networks of mutual aid, kind of drawing on the history of organisations like the Black Panther Party. I think there's a real need to re-envisage and re-envision 
what community self-defense looks like and what community self-organization looks like. And I mentioned kind of state violence and state repression that's been um, hypermobilized under the pandemic. Are there ways that we can use these mutual aid networks in service of preventing evictions, preventing immigration raids, intervening and recording stop and searches? And I guess maybe another thing to think about is, is there a way within our activism to reimagine public health? So we know that comorbidities are a real like, kind of key driving factor in COVID-19 mortalities. And as I mentioned earlier, often comorbidities have social as opposed to biological um, origins. So instead of our starting and stopping point being at no cuts to NHS services, what does it actually mean to design a society around public health, around mitigating against comorbidities um, of diseases like COVID-19? So that would kind of mean instead of building a society around being prepared for a pandemic, we would build a society around preventing a pandemic. And I guess that brings us square back to anti-capitalism again, because part of the problem, um, the part of the reason why we are in a pandemic in the first place, and why a disease like COVID-19 was able to get from nature to humans is because of deforestation is because of the insatiable appetite of the food industry, is because of neoliberalism and austerity, meaning that um, comorbidities are unable to be prevented, is because of poverty and destitution. So if we're really talking about a strategy that is about prioritising and saving human life, I really think that strategy has to kind of incorporate COVID justice on a revolutionary macro level. Um, And... Yeah, that's, that's all I have to say, to be honest. Perfect. Um, Sakina. Thank you. Never again am I going to follow Shanice on panels. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. There's, yeah, incredible visions, incredible imagery um, from the speakers. Thank you so much for that. And I know that we, we're we short on time. So in order to be able to get a couple of questions in, I'll, I'll keep mine super short. Um Essentially, for me, this conversation about the role that the state plays and, um, you know, navigating that, I think it's it's about being a strategic in balancing that, I think, and being really, really clear and really, really conscious, at least in, in my, my thinking, and I think in many others, that, like, we know that change comes from the streets and we know that change comes from the picket lines and we know that change comes from protests and from um, from you know, even even from the radical and imaginative ideas that we've already talked about in terms of abolitionist politics, but also even like um, historically our big, big movements, our big, big achievements from like civil rights in the US, but even more recently with Black Lives Matter uprisings, you know, Roads Must Fall was a movement of removing a slave owner statue that has been going on for years. And it in the uprising, you know, um, removing by force the Causton statue in Bristol was necessary in order to enable the tipping point of um, removing roads. And we had even just um, very quietly a statue removed, I think is in East London um, of a slave owner. And, and I, so I think that that kind of absolutely essential kind of the protest the 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 real fundamental change it comes from the streets and even if you look at for instance like the picket lines and trade unions it's the trade unions that fought for the weekends it was the trade unions that fought for health and safety and in the working environment it's trade unions that fight at the moment for living wage so i think that we can never underestimate we can never lose sight and perspective of where change comes from not only what enables it and what catalyzes it which but also simultaneously where the, the ideas come from and and um 
So for me, it's about being strategic with that perspective. Um, and, and I think for me, the, the finishing point is about like building and living the alternatives that we want to see um, rather than waiting for, um, you know, institutions and state institutions to create those alternatives. So again, in my line of work around climate justice, for me, that's like energy companies as one example of that. Um, how do we create energy companies that are locally run by people that are not for profit and any any money used or created can be built within the community and, and decided what they do i know in hamburg for instance they built they like bought back their local grid from eon and vattenfell in hamburg and any surplus money that was made was used uh, was put back into local kindergarten schools for working class kids in order to ensure that they were able to participate in school trips and holidays um, so i think that like community control real community control real community control of resources and assets um, and also something that's really essential to people's lives enabling us to have infrastructure that enables people to organize around that um is is absolutely essential i think in in, in terms of how we go forward and we organize and i think crucially on that um making sure that we build around people's needs so this is something that i think for instance like the london renters union have done like superbly like actually organizing around what the needs are on the ground and finding ways that you enable people to um co-create the strategic direction of that body um i think that um, more of that please um, and I think the thing that I'll end on is this you know in building that community and building and living in those and, and Sisters Uncut Shanice and Navira have given us incredible examples from Sisters Uncut who build those alternatives right they from necessity carve out spaces in in areas of London where um, women um, who are fleeing domestic violence can have refuge um, and create the principles and the values in that space that they know those kind of spaces should exist in um, so yeah absolutely building and living in those alternatives um, and yeah just to reiterate the thing that I said right at the beginning around like creativity and keeping that at the heart of it um use art use music use poetry dance together eat together like that is actually the the the, the soul of the movement that's actually how we cultivate love with one another and when we talk about that intimacy Millie, um and how do we organize within that in the pandemic um i'm also at a loss but i know that even when we are not in these conditions that sometimes in our movement we forget to create the conditions of love in our in our spaces and actually that's absolutely fundamental to transformation um, it's absolutely fundamental to making sure we bring everyone with us and if you can't practice your politics or if your, per your politics aren't personal if you can't be kind um, sometimes I question the depth of, of your commitment to liberation um, so I think like embodying, embodying the world we want to see as well Natalia Okay so I'm in the interest of time I'm going to just immediately uh, pose three questions from the audience to the panelists and then maybe if you guys could respond to whichever question you you want to uh, in the order that you guys originally spoke um, on and and maybe if you could just keep the response to one minute <laughs> just so that we we finish by eight so Ivan a PhD student from LSE asks um, the increase in community integration and support seen at the beginning of the pandemic seems to be reversing during the second wave, particularly among those who are better off. How can we realistically deconstruct the system and increase democracy without breaking the social fabric or alienating certain groups of people? The second question is from Grace Wild. She asks, what impact do you think the rhetoric around heroizing, 
particularly public sector key workers, had on precarious workers in the gig economy and their engagement with activism, unions, and speaking up for their employment rights, um, their rights over PPE, over sick pay, etc. And then the final question is from Oscar Humberto Ortega from Nicaragua. He asks, what can smaller or developing countries do to prepare for the new normal? What new skills, fundraising, and other options are there to get out and improve the situation worldwide? So should we start maybe with Avia? Um, if you could just respond to whichever of those you, you like. Yeah, I think I'm going to um, try and go for the, the first question. I think it's a really important um, question to ask at this point, um, especially since, you know, uh, I've never really felt like lived in a time where society has felt so divided. Um, however, there are these little pockets and these little moments um, which feel like you can imagine something else. And I guess what I would like to see is um, a strategy for building on what we have developed and established during the pandemic around mutual, uh, uh, mutual aid, around community support, um, around community self-sufficiency building on those networks, which at the moment may only be like a number of WhatsApp groups or Facebook groups all over the country into something a little bit more substantial. So I'm thinking um, of moving that up to, you know, as, as Shanice was saying, spaces where we can do that organizing work in social centers um, or in, you know, occupying office box, whatever it is, or um, building towards getting the money and the resources to, um to do those things on a on a on a bigger scale and in terms of you know the question around um not alienating certain groups i think it's important that we um bring solidarity back onto the agenda and when i talk about solidarity i mean uh, proactive solidarity what is kind of missing from a lot of our organizing is the idea that actually for most of us um our interests are um actually in common <laughs> We don't feel like it. And a lot of people talk about the individualizing nature of neoliberalism. But actually, like how many people of my generation are facing housing problems, um, uh, fixed term contracts or unemployment or uh, working in the gig economy or um, a lack of access to healthcare, And, you know, we don't necessarily see all these things as connected or our interests as connected, but they are. So for me, it's about building solidarity. The way to build solidarity for me between groups that may be feeling alienated at the moment is by creating the spaces where they can organize on these things together and where they uh, where people um, can um, see that their interests are aligned. And actually, if I, in my experience in community organizing for years, when you get people who may think they don't have very much in common, who may think actually they um, don't want to be, in a, you know, don't um, um, have interests aligned um, and they fight on the same um, uh, and they fight on something against a common enemy. You see those barriers coming down very, very quickly. Um, it's the, for me, the only strategy that works um, and that I've seen to work and it's been pr um, proven to work as far as I can tell. So I'd like to like scale up the kind of um, the things we've established around mutual aid and um, expand it and, and kind of uh, make it a bit more concrete. Thank you. Uh, Chrisanne was next. 
Yeah, I, I'll just quickly take a little bit of the second question regarding the, um, uh, you know, NHS workers. And we did uh, uh, some structured interviews off the back of the uh, pandemic and the measures being taken to protect key workers and um, nurses, etc. And I would just say performative um it was very performative, right? The measures of clapping every Thursday for NHS workers and quite insulting, to be honest. So, so I think that I would say from just the interviews that we had with young people whose parents worked in frontline jobs, they wanted to see more tangible change. So I would say that, you know, don't get distracted by the little tokens of, of appreciation, but rather really interrogate that, you know, take the token, but then say, actually, but I think this is what we should do instead. We need pay rises. We need more PPE equipment. We need to demand for more. And I think a lot of times in communities who have not been given or appreciated much, um, and it happens all around the world, you give something of a token and they really appreciate it because they just want to be valued and, and seen and visibility is important but that we should ask for more we should be more radical in what we're actually asking for um, when it comes to our rights and our place in society and the social contract that we're signing and entering into um, uh, you know as we even migrate around the world I think that's really crucial. Thank you Sh Shanice just a reminder that I think we're going to cut off at eight so we should be just in time. <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll take the second question. So I guess one of the interesting ideological things about a horizontal lockdown that goes across the entirety of society is that it creates this all in it together feel across the country. And you saw how like Boris Johnson having to isolate when he got COVID and Trump and how that's mobilized to create this all in all in it together um, nationalism almost. And I, I think that's the exact same thing that happened with the hero rising particular sections of work at key workers you know nurses doctors usually like NHS staff and I think what that really served to do was invisibilize the class dynamics at the heart of what it meant to be a key worker which is that you are going out to do a rubbish job that's probably going to pay you very little you're probably working shifts on huge like hours sometimes probably being rotated um, and that, that kind of public sector vibe that was created around key workers is really just like a small percentage of the key workers, right? So I guess there's something that was quite invisibilizing about how that was used. And so I really don't have any solutions for how we counteract that, except to say that we should make sure that like we, we counteract um, that narrative in our activism. And finally, Sakina. Yeah, I'm just conscious we'll get cut off. So I just really want to just say thank you. Is it going to like end? Is it going to cut out? So we've been told, but we're not sure. <laughs> Maybe we should just pass back to you to say like, thank you for having us and wrap up because I'd hate for us to be cut out in the midst of someone's sentence. So please, Sakina, we want you to have the last word. <laughs> I've got nothing interesting to say. Okay, all I'll say is um, I just want to uplift what Avia was saying about I'd love to see um, a kind of infrastructuralization, if that's even a word, of the mutual aid groups. I think like that's an incredible, um, incredible infrastructure that we've got. And also it's it's people who aren't previously politicized, I think, can understand the shortcomings um, of government priorities um, because undoubtedly working people and people in the care homes were sacrificed. And I think I did a talk during the pandemic and someone even reminded me that we went into lockdown, but some of the people in the gig economy didn't go into lockdown. They still had to get delivery drivers still had to go out and work. And I think that 
that like sacrificing of certain communities um, within the UK has become a, as something that's actually historical and we've seen in global south countries and we see here in black and brown um, working class communities especially that sacrificing of certain groups of people is something that we can no longer no longer um, have covered and it's that that light that's being shone upon it I think mutual aid groups can be really fundamental in in enabling that but also building up our trade unions and re you know re-empowering them Thatcher brought our trade unions to our knees and I think that they are fundamentally important institutions in terms of um the organizing of workers um in the UK so uh yeah for me those and, and just those three questions were so astute in their analysis as they as they came anyway so thank you very much for bringing those into the space and yeah, thank you, Natalia and Millie, for having us. It's been such a phenomenal discussion. Natalia, do you want to say any last words? Or? No. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to end by saying thank you so much to all of our incredible panellists for these just incredibly thought Oh, we've been cut off. <laughs> Good to know. Well, I will close by saying thank you again to all of you so much. It was so incredible. I just cannot um yeah thank you enough and the audience too for these amazing questions so we will close the event now and for anybody who is still watching please feel free to look at the lse ir um, and lse public events page for future um events in the covid and the world series although i can't imagine how they could follow this one so thanks to everybody and see you again soon <laughs>